0: Hello, one and all, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you on board today. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience submitted questions. And in that way, you kind of drive the show. Second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic. And today is typically graphics day, but it's also our second day of our NAB floor show coverage or show floor coverage. If In any, in any case, NAB has always been a hotbed of broadcast graphics introductions. So we may be covering some of that today for those of you who come kind of on Tuesdays because you're graphics oriented. Speaking of NAB, we got to give a huge props to the field teams from yesterday, the folks that we deployed out onto the show floor did an amazing job of helping us understand a little bit about what NAB is all about. So to Javier Alfaro, Felipe Baez, George Kennedy, Jeffrey Powers, and TJ Heideman, you guys all did an amazing job of bringing all of us into the show floor. And we're looking forward to having uh, some more of that today. Our coverage, which I misstated as 1 to 3, is actually 3 to 5 p.m. today. So if you come back to your regular login to office hours at 3 p.m., we will do the same kind of panel that we did yesterday and all the inserts into our live remote crews there on the show floor. So if you've never been to an NAB, it's the closest I think you can get. We'll be crawling the aisles and looking at some of the big announcements. Um, oh, I also have one more show note for those of you who might have been enjoying our reader workshops on Tuesday. Uh, that, of course, has been bumped to next week because our NAB coverage happens today at 3 o'clock. That's when that used to take place. Um, but let's get our heads out of NAB for the moment because this is our regular daily show. And Courtney, what are our regular producers interested in today?
1: Well, let's see. Our first question up comes from Bill Mew in Tunbridge Wells. He asks, Blackmagic Design's new DeckLink IP slash SDI HD can input or output two channels via Ethernet or SDI. Blackmagic Design's Television Studio HD 8 ISO can also take remote cameras via Ethernet, but they use different protocols, 2110 IP and RTMP. Can this be resolved... Via firmware
2: updates. Roscoe Jones is going to help us out a little bit here. Well, yeah, anything can go through firm. I mean, I I don't put anything past the Blackmagic engineers to do. The question is, is, you know, when will they do it and why do they need to do it? Um, Obviously, if they're very good at listening to the customer base. So I would guarantee if you're buying two components that can talk to each other over Ethernet and can be resolved over uh, using just a firmware update, yeah, it'll be done.
0: You know, Roscoe, we hear a lot about 2110 these days. It seems to be the big oncoming thing. Does that make you feel confident that as it takes over the industry, more and more people will be
2: writing uh, interpreters or parsers to get more equipment using it? Oh, absolutely. 2110, you know, again, it's a SIMTE standard. So the SIMTE is great at putting out the standards that every business then depends on to communicate with, uh, not just in- Well, internally, they can come up with different standards that they talk to their own equipment with. But every, everything needs to talk, and a professional talks to the next piece of equipment, which isn't controlled by your company. And that's where these standards are very helpful. Yeah.
0: And it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes this can't talk to that, but it sure is great when it does. Courtney, you had other thoughts?
1: Yeah, the only thing I was going to say is that um, it. It may need a higher speed Ethernet connection than is in those current ones. Uh, the uh, new 2110 IP stuff all supports 10 gigabit Ethernet, so you have to make sure that the, you've got a speed match between the two if you're going to be carrying more than a single channel on that thing.
0: Is I'm not that familiar. I'm not a, a network engineer at all. Not even think about being close to it. So uh, if you have a device on that has the old less than 10 gigabit Ethernet, Maybe one gigabit or something like that. Does that bring down the whole network and cause problems with things like this? Do And I guess what I'm asking is, do you have to kind of redo your entire network infrastructure to
1: get those kind of speeds to make it work? Yeah, pretty much. Um, okay. Some so of them this, are backward compatible, can Can take take lower speed internet, but uh, the lower speed can't go to the higher speeds. So. Okay. John Preto, you had some thoughts?
3: Yeah, this this and this is interesting because I I talked about this. I, I come out of the networking world, and when I did the when I saw the math on twenty one ten a couple of years back, it's clear to me that the routing gear and switching gear fabric inside of these, say these big NFL trucks, is way more expensive than the video gear is going to cost. Oh, and that's this, interesting. This switcher has four 10 gigabit Ethernet ports in it. So yeah. so we did when we did the math yes, yesterday he had. 310 1080p 2110 feeds per gigabit port. That's kind of how the math worked.
0: Interesting. So there will be changes coming in if you're buying router equipment, things like that. It would make sense to me that you pay serious attention to this if you want it to be long-term viable, that buy for the future, not necessarily just for the present, if you can. All right, let's go on to
1: the next question. This one comes in from our friend Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. He says, what low-budget product that you've seen at the NAB show most captivates you?
0: You know, it's interesting. We walk in the show floor. We talked about this a lot yesterday. You go to the big booths, the huge multi-story, sometimes multi-pad, uh, footprint, giant names in the industry. But walking around the outside of the NAB show and seeing the little 10 by 10 booths can be some of the most cool stuff that you see. And I know I bought a lot of little stuff out of there. Roscoe, uh, and you see anything you liked? It,
2: it was that Streamer X that was in the road booth. I mean, this is as small and simple as it gets, but for the person who just needs to literally be in a hotel room or somewhere where they have one data connection and just needs to plug in one a, HDMI port and a microphone and be able to have an intelligent, kind of what we're doing here, I'm on one camera, one microphone, and uh, I just thought small Straight to the point no bells or whistles that I could tell and it I think it was uh, see, a price I'm trying to remember it was 199 or somewhere in there yeah so that there you go perfect
0: example of something you can find on the floor John Pretto.
3: What, captiv- what captivates me the most is George Kennedy's Long Dreadlocks. Those are amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if you can buy those. I'm sure there's some uh, fakie version, but George's are authentic, and uh, you got you got to put in the time and effort if you want those. Let's
1: go on to the next question. Okay, next one comes in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, here in the USA. Uh, thoughts on the new ATEM television studio 4K8 spec support REC 2020. Is this good for HDR and are there any pitfalls?
0: Well, I'm I'm not sure we're going to have anybody on this panel who's going to have that thing. You know, this is this is our conundrum this week. A lot of our technical expertise is on the floor at NAB because this is how the engineering types who populate our thing uh, kind of keep up with what's going on. So uh, I don't know if anybody knows about 2020 and HDR, but, uh, oh, Roscoe raised the sands, Roscoe.
2: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, 2020 is just the color space. Um, what we have is, uh, you know, an expanding, we've gone from Rec. 709 to, you know, uh, the triangle keeps getting larger. And if, so, rec anytime you can improve the color space and certainly add HDR, uh, the, the world's gonna be happier. It's gonna be a better image being passed through this particular piece of equipment. So yes, definitely Rec. 2020. Yeah, we're all going to be there. It's just like all these standards, you know, we're all going to try to get there. And the question is, is when the microchips can do it very inexpensively, then I'll buy it. Yeah. I think
0: I resonate with what you're saying. I also say that I've, I've been rec 2020 has been on my radar, the extended color space. I still have to deliver almost all of my work in uh, standard dynamic range and in standard rec 709 video standard. Um, but I can see where it's going to go, and I know Alex has been talking a lot about his disappointment. If you if you live in a rec twenty twenty or an HDR or a huge raster world, and you look back at what we've been living with as our standard for a while, it it does tend to pale in comparison. Uh, it's it almost to me seems like not maybe as powerful as the transition from black and white to color, but certainly the SD to HD as Common video currency. You go back and you look at at a two forty or or a six forty by two eighty standard def picture, and you're going. That looks kind of funky and there's not much resolution there. And is that really worth watching? Um, I think the same thing is going to happen with other things. Roscoe, you had another thought?
2: Uh, Yeah, Mickey pointed out in chat that uh, pitfall, hopefully they'll be able to select the color space that, in other words, you can move on this switcher between Rec. 2020 and Rec. 709 or whatever standard you need. And if they don't allow for that, that would be uh, limiting, but it's limiting at the high end.
0: Nice. Okay. Let's move on to the next
1: question then.
2: Coming in from
1: uh, the UK with Nick Bat, uh, asking a question. He's managing footage for a cloud edit from the NAM convention. Frame IO sync to local, keeping the folder structure. The editors edit, but how do they know which files are done without moving the local files and breaking the Frame IO sync? Ooh, this as cloud workflows
0: develop, these kinds of questions are going to be bigger and bigger. Roscoe, your thoughts? Uh, Hedge
2: yesterday was one of the ones that uh, is a workflow. Um, there's all kinds of ways this is done. Uh, we're doing it, I think, because the question of... Uh, to us, we're just assigning an editor to that particular project. Therefore, this belongs to Susie. This belongs to Sam. You know, they're not. So therefore, they shouldn't necessarily be in each other's way as far as uh, taking material away or utilizing material. Um, The other thing is, some material is evergreen. That static shot of the beautiful NAB convention sign or whatever, that will be made available to everyone so they can use that for their edits. But in the industry, there's all kinds of software um, Unity, uh, which is uh, its Unity on the Avid, uh, did this for years. This is this was the file control software, and so it literally, as an editor, when you were accessing that file, you locked it so that no other editor on the. Attached storage could get to it, and that was a necessity because a, f- a file could be easily corrupted if two people try to open it at the same time. So,
0: Yeah, that's always been one of the biggest problems in collaborative editing is that at what, how how much access do you give to whom? Avid has had that bin locking system forever, but it takes a pool of content and says one person has access to it right now. Nobody else does. This uh, idea that we should all be able, you know, in the same set of frames, there should be one person who can work on the actual editing, another person working on the color timing of those shots. A third person working on the audio track of those same shots. That's still, I think, pretty pie in the sky at this point. It, there's just no way that you can, that I've heard of so far, that people can really get multiple people touching the same digital assets at the same time and manipulating them so usually some sort of sequestering has to be done i don't really i haven't kept up with frame io in the last year or so to see what how they're doing but uh there, there's stuff going on
2: so uh roscoe uh once again mickey for the win uh mickey we love having you around because we anyways uh he just says that they're creating custom status phrases on FrameIO and then they're setting the status on the clips
0: Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So they're trying, they're they're are researchers trying to work in there and figure out how to how to at least apply some metadata to ranges to allow uh serial access uh, serial access, I guess. That'd be interesting. I'm gonna have to spend some time looking into that because everybody wants to do it now that, that cloud storage is getting less expensive and quicker to access in kind of near real time, if not actual real time. Although edit I will say editors are f- a funky bunch about editing with anything that's not real time there. Everybody editor I know, and I spend most of my time editing in my profession, um, you know, you get into a zone and you really responsiveness is a major part of what you're doing. I can't tell you how many editors I've seen who are very rhythmic and very intuitive and it has to cut now. And at the moment now is now that's what you want to affect. You don't want to be even a couple of frames one way or another. In fact, there's a famous story in uh, one of Walter Murch's books it, that he does the same edit three times independently, and it's only if he hits the same frame each time to make his decision about the edit does he feel like he's actually executed the edit properly. And I think a lot of editors uh, resonate with that. It's very it, it, at, its, at its higher level, it's an intuitive and rhythmic kind of a thing. Now let's move on to the next question.
1: Next one comes in from Andy Kokendolfer again in VR, Florida. He asks, has the NAB team uh, had a chance to look at the Sony SRG-A40 and SRG-A12 with PTZ or pan to zoom, pan-tilt-zoom auto-framing?
2: And how accurate is the framing?
0: Roscoe, did you hear anything? Uh-
2: well, no, it's... Just, I was just going to point out that Sunday <laughs> was the prep day for yesterday's show for NAB. So they were, you know, the crews are running around, looking at the booth, talking to people saying, Hey, we're going to come to you tomorrow. Who do we get to talk to? What do we get to show that kind of stuff? And so that's what's going on right now. And that's why the show today is in the afternoon because they're having yesterday, they had Sunday, they had time yesterday, and then they have all this morning to walk the floor, find some uh, things, hopefully, and then they can bring them to us.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of following our philosophy is we don't really, if if, Alex has always said, rather than talking to a demo person, not that I'm besmirching demo people, they are very talented and have a thing to do, but often they know their script for their product. They've studied their product. And if you want to get information about how that part of their ecosystem, let's say you're talking to a big booth like Sony or something like that deals with other parts of their ecosystem, you need to, uh, ratchet up to a technician or a product manager or somebody above the level of the person that you might see at the booth as an average visitor to NAB. So I know Alex loves being able to get to those people. And I think that's part of what our prep is, to figure out who's the person with the best answers and who can we put on the show. And that means it can't all be entirely spontaneous. We have to go and see if that person has time and when we can schedule a meeting with them, with our camera crew, and then coordinate the camera crews to do it. So there are a lot of moving parts in what we're trying to do with NAB this year. Let's move on to the next question.
1: Next one comes in from Talalik Lopez-Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland. Uh, He says, it seems that Parsec has been acquired by Unity Industries. Will this be a good change for users?
0: I've never used Parsec. I think it's one of those communication protocols, or is it a transcoding thing? Um, it, it has a good reputation out there, but I'm not sure. And uh, I don't think we have anybody else on the panel here on our in our uh, more bare bones than typical group. Uh, so we probably don't have the quite the width we would normally have. On the office hours main panel, so I uh, sorry, Tlalek. bring it back to the discussions afterwards or to another one, and let's let's see if we can get somebody on here who has a little bit more uh, technical depth than that. Let's go on to the next question.
1: Next question comes in from uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, and Canada. Alexander Knight asks, "How was this visual effects shot accomplished on this 1983 Japanese National Batteries commercial?" Says, "I can see some cuts." But the initial shot of the tiny yellow fire ladder looks impressive. And we had a right nice there.
0: discussion. Yeah, we had a nice discussion to this beforehand. And Courtney, you 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 actually know something about battery commercials, don't you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I did work on all those original EverReady Energizer batteries with the Energizer Bunny, going from commercial to commercial. But this this shot, I remember this commercial running on television in Japanese uh, uh, Japanese TV. Uh, It's, uh, if you haven't seen it uh, or we haven't seen an example of it, it's a little toy fireman with, uh, two Japanese batteries in its back, similar to the Ever Ready, uh, bunny commercial. And they put the little toy fireman on his little ladder and he climbs from rung to rung to rung with a little motorized climbing effect. And then the camera pulls back and sees that the ladder he's on is on like a 20 story building, uh, and he's climbing that 20-story building, and there's various cuts of him climbing outside of the windows as he climbs past each individual window. And I think there's only one or two. This, of course, is before computer graphics and compositing. Uh, there was regular compositing. They could do split screens and things. And so I think there's a couple of split screens in there and a uh, a painted-up picture of the ladder that runs down the side of the building from the top of the building. That is a composite. But everything else I think they actually did practically, they didn't run, the, I don't think they ran that ladder the whole height of the building, but probably a, a floor or two so that they could get the closer up shots of it climbing up the side of the building and it was shot from the actual location. That's my take on it.
0: I'm surprised they didn't build a little mod of them and do it, model of him and do it in stop motion animation a la King Kong. <laughs> that would have been fun too. I never saw that one, at least I don't remember it in my uh, in my. Memory banks, but
2: uh, oh, Roscoe, you had a thought. Well, I just want to, Courtney. I believe your NDA has expired, and if you just want to tell us what uh, powered the Energizer Bunny, uh, okay. The uh, the Energizer <laughs> Bunny was not powered by Energizer batteries. The real
1: the first robotic bunny before they went to all CGI bunny uh, was powered by Makita drill batteries because <laughs> they would <laughs> slide them in, and and another one used it in, in NT1, MP1. Uh, oh, the Sony ion camera, batteries, yeah, Sony Sony batteries for video cameras. Yeah, because they were rechargeable, and they had we had to you know shoot a fifteen hour day with that that uh, that robotic bunny, and it had like five puppeteers operating it remotely uh, with the uh, these Futaba uh, radio controls. So uh, it took a lot of juice to run that battery to run that little bunny.
0: Yeah, I'm not at all surprised because I've had to spend maybe eight, nine minutes changing out uh, a six group of AAA batteries in some toy from my son. And if you have to get the small screwdriver out, open up the compartment and then break two or three fingernails trying to pry those little batteries. out. Yeah, you don't want that kind of thing on the set. You want a, you want a quick
1: change uh,
0: environment. Let's go
1: on to the next question. Expression. Question, Ah sorry, next question comes in from Bill Mew in Turnbridge Wells. It says Blackmagic Designs Television Studio HD8 ISO doesn't have fully assignable aux on all outputs like the new Television Studio 4K8. Can this be resolved via firmware updates? Can the office hours team out at the NAB ask Blackmagic Design what the chances are?
0: Yeah, the second part of that is unknown only because we were at the Blackmagic booth yesterday and there are a thousand booths plus there at at NAB. So a lot of uh, ground to cover on the show show floor. But Courtney, what are your thoughts?
1: I'm not sure how the routing is done on the old ones. I know because the original ones were designed to have a single output for each camera input that carried uh, not only the video Output the program video output out each one, but it had mix minus for each particular input on each individual output for that input. And it also had camera controls going back out each individual output for each individual input. So that's a lot of routing of, of metadata and signals, secondary signals that have to be superimposed on that, um, in the, the metadata area of the SDI of each of those outputs. And if to make them freely assignable as aux outputs uh, kind of breaks that connection of the metadata for those individual cameras. So you have to do a much more complex routing internally. So I don't know if it's possible to do it uh, if they have the hardware in those old ones to handle it or if they can just do it with a firmware update.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, By the way, uh, oh, two things. First of all, Bill Mew, uh, one thing I will note, uh, hold out some hope, uh, maybe not a, a ton, but... The crews are listening and paying attention to what we're doing today. So if somebody is by the Black magic design, it is not impossible that they might see your question here in Mukana and uh, ask somebody there and, and who knows what can happen based on that. The other thing I wanted to note is voting and questions. as always. Uh, we are burning through our questions pretty quickly here, which means it's an excellent day to add your questions into the Mukana system. If you want to hear anything about either the topics, the general production topics that are our uh, normal um, grist for the <laughs> mill, so to speak, please enter those. If you have anything about NAB, you're welcome to put those in here uh, and talk in general about what's going on there. And of course, this will, this whole system, the Mukana back end, will get cleared out. Not to say that we won't remember some of the things posted in it. Here for this morning's uh, session, but it will get cleared out prior to the, our NAB coverage, and there'll be a fresh place to put your questions in for the field team for NAB. So all that's happening today, and once you put questions in, as always, don't forget to vote them up or down so that we handle the things that you are most interested in earliest and speak to them the longest. Let's go to the next question.
1: Next one comes in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, what Press and media organizations, aside from office hours, are doing the best coverage of the NAB show
3: twenty twenty
0: three. When I haven't been here, I've been sleeping, so I have no idea. But John Pretto has probably been watching. John, what do you see?
3: I don't know about best. I, on Sunday, I watched the NAB show live, which is the their own internal show. And uh, I watched it long enough to watch their prepackaged loops run, which was about 90 minutes. And it's pretty good. It's highly, highly produced. And all the interviews were were basically uh, produced ahead of time, Uh, done it on the show floor, but they were you could see that they were rehearsed and scripted prior. So they they put a lot of effort in there. They had great lower thirds and everything else. So it's it's pretty good.
0: Yeah, one of the coolest things about the North Hall, uh, you come in, uh, there's an escalator up to where the press offices are and things like that. But usually they set up a, a a little broadcast kind of switchers audio and everything that's their operation for taking things off the show floor and editing it into there. And it's kind of nice because there's usually a glass window around the whole thing so that everybody can watch the operators actually put the show together in a live sense there. That's kind of cool. Roscoe thoughts. Uh,
2: I always enjoy, there's always one or two uh, man bands, I guess is the right, you know, somebody who just takes their iPhone and is at their first NAB or second NAB and just having a great time. I think that's, to me, that always reinvigorates me to watch that kind of coverage. But in uh, earlier in the week or somebody asked a question, I found this publication called Broadcasting Bridge which is dedicated to the IT of broadcasting infrastructure or, or bridging the gap between, you know, traditional media pipelines and stuff. So I'm really kind of watching how they report on the show because I just think the industry, this is where they're headed or this is where we are, I should actually say now. So uh, newer publications can be really interesting. Yeah. Um,
1: Courtney. Courtney. I haven't had a chance to look at it, but I know Asimpty International was supposedly doing uh, the futures of television uh, broadcast from the show, and I want to take a look at that because I thought that might be pretty well produced. And I agree with uh, Bill and uh, Roscoe. the uh, The show floor uh, in the middle of this used to be in the middle uh, the area between the central hall and the north hall. They used to have their little television studio set up the NAB. Uh, itself uh they'd have uh, show vendors come in and they would interview them in a little set like the tonight show uh with a you know couch a couple of chairs and a commentators and they have usually a camera on a jib arm and a couple other cameras uh, that are actually operated by operators maybe they've gone to ptz's now that would be interesting to see some behind the scenes on that i think they moved that studio to the north hall um since north hall used to be audio and radio mostly and they usually had a little bit of room in there but now, uh, this year, since there are a lot less exhibitors uh, so far, uh, they uh, use some of that uh, square footage in the North Hall to move that stage, I think, into the, to the North Hall. So that's where that is now. Cool. Um, so it'd be interesting to see maybe one of our crews can get back there if they're doing anything from there to see what their setup is and what they're using for that little little live broadcast booth from the show floor. That'd be interesting.
0: Cool. And Ken is our audience liaison as well. He's also keeping track of what's going on there. Ken, did you have something that that somebody from the outside had popped in that's interesting?
4: I do. A couple of things here, Bill. Um, For those uh, members of the audience who are not following along in chat, um, Roscoe, who mentioned the the Broadcasting Bridge, put a link in chat, and it is www.thebroadcastbridge.com, with no spaces or intervening characters the broadcast bridge.com. And secondly, uh, Mickey mentions that SVG has a production that's hard to beat.
0: Nice. I will say that the, 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 some of my favorite memories of NAB are, are back when I was working with Chris Herd and the folks at DV info, and I was covering the show as press. And in the first year that I did that, I thought, let me just rig up something that's really mobile. And I found a cart online that had um, a little, it, almost like a regular little um, single platform cart and I built a little rig on there and I, the one that I found was interesting because it had a camera mount at the top. So I mounted my camera to it and I rolled it through NAB and I did some booth interviews with a little mi- wireless mic just as totally a one-man operation. And I can't tell you how much fun it was to go to someplace and just roll up the pole on the camera, turn on a light, and talk to somebody back and forth one-on-one with something. And I turned those into pieces that we put on the magazine's website. I didn't have a better experience for many years at NAB than just getting, you know, can I, sh- can I show your stuff? Particularly those little booths in the back. You know, you had some weird little product, and probably the big big-name people weren't going to get to you. People just lit up. You're going to put this on the web? Sure, absolutely. So there, there was a lot of opportunity for things like that. And I, I just really found that a charming experience in every sense. I'm a bit aged now to go running around trying to carry that much equipment back and forth and schlepping it into Las Vegas, uh, checking all the batteries the night before, going and doing essentially what some of our teams have done now with two or three people. Uh, I just found that a lot of fun. I kind of missed that a little bit. Let's go to the next
1: question. This one comes in from uh, Eric uh, Price in Kansas City. It says, anyone have any experience using radials, JS2 or JS3 microphone splitters? Are they transformer isolated? Is this a good option for getting a single presenter's mic uh, when you don't have access to a conference center sound system outputs?
0: So, Eric, I have done a good little bit of taking taps off of boards <clears> and <throat> conferences and things like that. And to be honest with you, I'm I, that has been one of the most stress-filled points in my life. In fact, uh, before we go to Courtney, who's about to comment on this, I will tell you the short story of a circumstance where I had a, a gig for a professional speaker. It, he was speaking in front of a large group. And uh, in the back of my mind, I had always said, I want primary, secondary, and tertiary audio feeds. But it's a lot of work sometimes to get three feeds. Most of the time, two will do. But anyway, I had my lavalier placed on the speaker. I had a tap from the board, and I'd ask the board operator, please give me a feed. And sure enough, at some point, the battery which was a fresh battery first the only time I've ever had this happen to me in my life died on the lavalier transmitter so I thought oh my god thank goodness I have the board feed and for about 10 minutes I was listening to the board feed and I was going okay I've got good audio but something kept nagging at me and as a tertiary because I had a time I put a little EV635 mic up at the ceiling speaker but I'd left the XLR for it sitting there for about five minutes I had not plugged it in I thought you know, I've only got one channel coming in. Let me unplug this and plug this in. Not more than two minutes after I do that, the board operator hit some button and my feed from the board died. (laughs) And it was only that little hand mic up at the speaker at the top 20 feet above us that saved the entire thing. I would have failed the job and I would not have gotten paid if it hadn't been for that. So um, I'm always been a little suspect of, purely relying on any one form of audio for a mission-critical shoot. You want to make sure that you have some extra stuff. So microphone splitters, uh, doing things like a single presenter's mic, uh, thinking that you can just take the conference center output and patch into the board. I mean, a lot of board operators are very kind, and they will be happy to give you a post-fade uh, insert if you have the right equipment to tap out of that, and you can get really good quality audio like that. But I still try to say never just one audio source. That's my thinking. Courtney, take it away.
1: Yeah, these two uh, these two that were mentioned, Radials JS2 and JS3, I think are both passive transformer based isolating isolation splitters. Uh, and bear in mind that you'll usually have some signal loss when you insert that. Uh, a transformer splitter in the line, and another thing to take care of, to worry about is uh, if there's any kind of 48 volt phantom being used for that microphone that you're putting the splitter in line of, because I don't think that will be passed because there's a ground lift button uh, on that particular box, and if you lift the ground, you're going to lose your 48 volts possibly pass through to the microphone, and it will go dead. Uh, a better solution is is usually an active uh, with transformer isolations on the active outputs, uh, like a press box or something. Uh, there are a number of companies that make these portable, like an attaché case uh, uh, with you know, a little VU meter and 20 or 30 outputs that you can feed to the press out there. They're called press boxes. And... Um, That's possibly a better solution. They are powered, although they're not passive like these are. So I'd be careful using these passive because you might drop your signal level coming from your main mic down through to the board and the, the person that's running the audio system may be a little miffed at that. And, uh, It's important to be able to do a ground lift because if you're plugged into AC on any of your equipment, you can induce hum into the main system, which would be bad. And that's why there's a little ground lift button on that box. So be careful about that. I always uh, kind of uh, shy away from putting my own equipment in line with the main equipment. Uh, And plus, in order to insert it, you have to unplug their equipment for a short period of time to plug yours in line. So there's that problem to deal with as well.
0: Yeah, there's the may I, (laughs) hi, you're my friend, can I mess up your situation, get my Y cable in there and will it mess you up? Roscoe, your thoughts?
2: Well, that's exactly it. I, I assume that I'm there paying, my contract states that I'm there to provide sound. If I don't provide good sound, I don't get paid. Therefore, you're not touching anything that's going into my board. Uh, If somebody didn't request a press box output on the back end, there's no way that you're going to have access to something, especially if it's the line, the single line. Of course, hopefully we did redundancy coming from the microphone podium or the stage down to the board. So that means that you should have your own complete sound system. This this is an element that in a very kind situation, maybe at a wedding uh, or something like that, somebody might let you plug into, but in a professional under contract, no, you're not going to have access to that microphone line. And... Uh, there's all kinds of inexpensive ways. I've used those little road go-tos and just go put it right on the podium, right where the speaker was, and it turned out better than what they had because their microphone was up in the wind and that little thing was protected by the edges of the podium. So you may actually get better sound by putting in your own system. Yeah,
0: I'm going to support that. In fact, we are living in great times because you have all these small little... Uh, Road and, and uh, Zoom H4 uh, or H2s that you can put something right up next to there as your third level fail-safe. I, the wireless mics, I, I commensurate with what uh, Roscoe was just saying. I used My primary thing was always my own expensive Sony wireless mic system, laved on the person with the body pack, direct back to my camera. Even if the entire building goes dark, I want to make sure I still have sound coming in. It's only in those circumstances where for some weird reason that fails that you have to drop back and drop back again, and then you're dealing with these other pathways. Hopefully that answered your question, Eric. Uh, let's dive into the next one.
1: Next one comes in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, what AI features are you seeing in products at the NAB show? John Preto.
3: So we we played both with the Adobe. In fact, on our show yesterday, they talked about the new feature for for AI text into uh, Premiere. And so you can go to to if you're if you're a subscriber for Premiere, you can download the beta. The new beta has transcription and text based editing built in. And then Blackmagic also announced that they had transcription built into Resolve. I I don't see the ability to edit yet text in in Resolve. But it is in Premiere, which is bad news for Descript.
0: And I can say, because I was talking with him on the phone a little bit before the show, that Alex on the show floor is really interested in this. And he's looking at Firefly and some other things uh, that are in the AI space. And we'll be reporting on them over the course of the week as he gets back here. So uh, I I think he said that there was a significant presence of AI, either as part of the bigger operations or some tools specifically. Courtney, have you been hearing things? (laughs)
1: <laughs> You're muted. Sorry, not a lot. Uh, I just was gonna mention that they there was a demo yesterday of, of uh eighteen point five of Resolve uh, uh, from Blackmagic yesterday. Uh and it did show the uh, automatic subtitling, which is what they're using their uh uh voice to text uh engine on using AI and that I, I think it will just be a short period of time until they got uh, script based editing as well. So they just dropped the script in the timeline and it will order those shots and do a, a rough cut of the individual shots based on the, the uh, text from the subtitles.
0: Yeah. I mentioned captioning. the other day that I've been using the, the lumberjack system. I had about starting about five years ago, I've used it for a couple of shows, particularly if I have to cover a conference and there's a lot of people doing speeches and things like that, or, you know, a lot of presenters to be able to get uh, audio transferred to text and be able to search on the text and edit based on when you edit the text, the video that is connected to it by metadata gets edited simultaneously is a pretty powerful and pretty useful thing. Uh, it, It does some things well, as all automated technologies do, and it does some things poorly, but it also can really cut down the time it takes to get to that rough cut stage. I don't think it's ever going to replace uh, you know, serious editing, taking a look at the nuances of transmitting information. But boy, all of us want to get rid of as much of the drudgery as we can. So these automated systems, and, and one of the areas where AI is doing really well is text-to-speech or speech-to-text. Either way, uh, if you can get more transcripts, more data about the show that you're about to work on, Uh, And if you can use it a little bit like Final Cut does in terms of putting a tag on something so that the moment you type that into your edit system, the clip associated with that term pops up. And I think there's going to be more and more of that as these transcripts flood through the system, AI generated or or, uh, generated in the cloud by the big computers. It's just going to make things easier and it's going to give us more time to pay attention to the aesthetics part of our jobs. Let's move on to the next
2: question.
1: Next one comes in from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. He says, do we think it's feasible that Maddie can be added to the ATEM Mini Pro lineup without adding significant cost? What's more likely to happen, balanced analog or digital inputs? Courtney, your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, if you look at the back, let's see if I can cut to it, the back of that uh, ATEM Mini extreme iso there's not a lot of room there for any other uh connectors to be put on there like a MADI connector which is sometimes an ethernet type connector and sometimes it's a d type connector like a d d25 or a d15 um so i don't know if they're going to really have room for it uh they'd have to make it a lot bigger And if they were to go to analog it would have to probably bring the uh, analog inputs on a d type connector where you have one connector with with a uh a, a cable that splits out all the analog uh, uh, connectors, XLR connectors, because there's just not room enough. It would have to be a, a ATM Maxi then to accommodate eight inputs of analog uh, plus all of their input circuitry and would have to be added. So I doubt that they're going to add it to the
2: to the mini line. Roscoe, uh, exactly what Courtney said. I would just say though, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, NAB is a pay- place of acquisition. So if Grant happens to walk around and he sees this little microphone company over here that has some incredible technology, uh, digital, and I would say that he would maybe take them, put them under his wing, and suddenly you'll see microphones in the Blackmagic design. I'm not thinking they're gonna head that direction, but it's always possible.
4: Ken, you had something from the audience? Well, the uh, chat seems to think that that's a uh, market differentiation primarily. Um, The um, uh, MADI stuff is usually fiber or BNC, and I agree, the chat agrees that uh, the room on the back of the box is kind of restrictive. Um, Another chat commenter says that the Constellation 4ME uh, has uh, MADI ins and outs, and so perhaps that's where they should look.
0: Maybe they need some video equivalent of Toslink, one little uh, tiny fiber optic connector that breaks out to something with a gazillion ports, and you can do anything you want with it. Wouldn't that be fun? Let's move on. Oh, wait a second. Before we move on, i it's that time I'm trying to discipline myself at 20 past and 40 past to remind everybody, every show, that you are driving this through your questions. You can add questions in in this first hour for either the first or second hour. And um, what you vote on, what you vote up, and what you uh, don't vote up determines what we spend the most of our time on through the rest of the show and through the first hour as well. So make sure you continue to add questions as you wish and vote them up and down. All right. I've done my due diligence. It's time to go on to the next question. Next one
1: comes in from uh, Jack uh rupel in uh, breckenridge colorado he says i use mcconnell light for listening to office hours is there a way to speed up the audio besides youtube or video to reduce bandwidth usage i'm driving with many stops
0: no thank you jack for listening to us while you're on the
2: road we appreciate that roscoe what are your thoughts well I was just I want to make sure is it stops in the audio are happening because his bandwidth is constrained I'm getting a little of that coming out of here but uh is it or is the answer is we don't have a pure audio stream I believe for him at this at, do we in in the light do we have it's a pure pulled audio off
0: it's pulled off in the back end, and I'm trying to remember the name of the service. Alex said, Icecast. Used. "Icecast." Icecast. Thank is you. Yes, yeah, there's an Icecast on server. On
1: yeah.
0: Our audio is going to, and then the mobile stream gets that, and you can tap into it as just an audio source through one of the links that I have in my notepad. And I don't know what it takes. Probably just McCona Light. Um, so, yeah, that's available, Courtney.
1: Uh, yeah, it is using Icecast, and and since you're listening, if you're listening to it. Live, There's no way to speed us up because you'd overrun the end of the show very quickly. Well, if we we could get in a
0: spaceship, put the show in a spaceship, approach the speed of (laughs) light.
1: But if you are listening delayed on on YouTube, then, of course, you can adjust the speed. And, you know, you just turn up the speed dial on your YouTube player and it will uh, speed up. But that's usually uh, audio and video. So it's still going to use the same amount of bandwidth. Uh, And if you're driving, uh, yeah, you're going to be using your mobile data uh, for that bandwidth. And uh, you'd be better off listening to the IceCast because it'll be using a lot less data because it's not pushing video out. But you'll have to listen to it in real time. And as we drone on and get boring, you won't be able to fast forward through us.
0: And, and Jack, if you're running across any accidents, if you're involved in one, you can't blame the fact that our delivery was too slow and you got bored and you fell asleep at the wheel. So just I'm, I'm putting down that marker. That's not our fault. <laughs> OK, moving on to the next
2: question.
1: This one comes in from uh, Douglas Carmichael. He says, do you think we'll ever see 2110 serial protocol in the ATM mini range like we did SDI? Ooh, Courtney, what do you think? Uh, Probably not, because um, uh, that's uncompressed uh, HD video and even 4K video, uh, and it takes a huge amount of bandwidth, uh, you know, 10 gigabit Ethernet, probably minimum to get uh, more than three, uh, you know, more than three streams of video in or out. So uh, it's going to take a lot heavier uh, hardware and a lot more robust network interface for you to connect that up and That's really designed, 2110 is designed for more professional interfaces. They may make a 2110 output on it just so that the program out can go out 2110 into a uh, IP-based video system. But uh, I don't see it for using it for inputs or complete interface for the switcher itself.
2: Let's, oh, Roscoe, Roscoe. No, I was just going to say the Mighty Microchip, 2042, that's my estimation, 2042, but I think Courtney's... I think Courtney's right on. I just don't. It will be in the cloud long before we probably see it on a mini. I don't know. If Moore's Law accelerates,
0: what's the next law after Moore's Law? Is it going to quadruple every 15 minutes? I don't know. It's,
1: it's crazy out there. Let's go on to the next question. This one comes in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, what is the NAB best of show? I
0: think the Schoenzer not over yet. Yeah, that's <laughs> typically an announcement. The last uh, of the show,
2: Brosco. Uh, no, that was it. You yelled you it. It's not over. And usually Best of Show isn't voted on until the end of the show because you have to get to those little booths in the back. There could be a Best of Show without a million-dollar marketing budget, but that Best of Show award is what gives them the marketing that they were seeking in coming to NAB. Um, I hope that it happens. And, you know, let's think dog shows.
0: That's the fun thing when the outside weird looking dachshund that everybody is split about ends up taking best of show It is such a Hollywood movie moment triumph. And so we want the same kind of thing for NAB. We want, you know, know, sometimes, yes, it's going to be the big operations. And we've seen best of shows coming out of big companies. But we've also seen those little um, dark horses, for lack of a better uh, meme, uh,
2: show up and do really well. Roscoe? I was just going to say, can I do my dad joke now? Sure. When what the happened? dogs when the dogs are barking, NAB is over.
1: <laughs> for those of you who have ever walked the show floor, you know how prescient that is, Courtney. Well, maybe we ought to set up a straw poll for best of show of our office hours uh, commentators in the field, field commentators. So we-
0: I, they'll all win. Yeah. It's get- going to be a dead heat. Everybody's crossing oh, the finish line Lord. exactly, even with an optical line. They've all done so well. Wow, what a what a great crew from yesterday, and we're really anxious and excited to have them back um, back today. It, it, it's just what what we're doing. I'm just still astonished at what we're doing. I mean, nobody's getting paid for this. We're all volunteers, and there's so much technical expertise that has aligned and traveled and yep. gotten together how, just because we enjoy it.
2: How about go we ahead. let Javier pick best of show?
0: Oh, there we go. He's that's right. It's well, his, his really, first time. Should, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, that's a great idea. Uh, Yeah. So the other thing is that NAB Best of Show may be in a category that you have no interest in. I mean, that's the thing that surprised me about NAB when I first started going. I actually kind of it got on my radar back when I was in the radio days because radio was a big part of NAB back in those early years. And as I migrated, started doing more video work and then more field production and got interested in lighting and um, things like teleprompting and and other things my experience and understanding expanded and i realized that there were much more there was much more to nab than i had anticipated when i first got involved with it and there are a lot of verticals so to speak there particularly now that most television is video over IP at some level in some place. They still do broadcast, yes, but most people are connected by cable. And we're seeing OTT, what uh, NAB coined years back uh, as over the top. These are the digital signal distributions that happen even though there is a broadcast signal. And all of the pay sites and the on-demand sites put video content and similar content radio shows, podcasts, and whatever. All that stuff in the digital realm, it's just covers a wide range of technologies. It's no longer just, oh, it's broadcast TV, so okay audio and broadcast TV is all we have to deal with. No, the, the technological scope of NAB in networking and a gazillion other things is just huge. So that's what makes it so much fun for me. Anyway, let's move on to the next question.
1: Uh, next one coming... Next one comes in from um, Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. He says, 2019 was my last time at an AB. Tesla has added tunnels, et cetera, since then. How does this transportation system work? Prado, you're a Las Vegas resident
0: native. Tell us how the construction and the big dig and the rest of that has impacted things.
3: Another one of Elon Musk's companies, The Boring Company, and Las Vegas contracted with The Boring Company. They have tunnels now going from the new west side over to the South Hall, uh, and I think that they have the leg all the way up to the to Resorts World, which is up the street. But they have plans to to link up all of Las Vegas, all the way to the airport, all the way to Legion Stadium, stadium all the way to UNLV, which is a huge undertaking for the next decade. Are they? And, are and they can drive under the strip and put yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, wow. and they just drive Model Threes through through the tunnels. That's what they do. Yeah,
0: it's it's a fascinating thing. I that I missed. Uh, I, if I was at NAB, I was going to try to do that. I, maybe we'll get one of our crews down there in the tunnel. I <laughs> can take a ride
1: along. That'd be kind of fun. Anyway, um, Courtney, you had thoughts. Yeah, it's interesting. They're they're using Model Threes with drivers though still, I'm waiting for them to to go to full automatic. Uh, Driving on that, since you don't have to deal with pedestrians, all the thing you got to worry about is run into the Model 3 in front of you. And with your radar talking to each other from one car to the next, I think it would be pretty easy to do. Um, so once they automated that, get the drivers out of the loop, then you can carry one more passenger per car and uh, and not worry about a lot of the the other you know, difficulties with fully automated driving. You know, Because you're driving in a little tunnel, there's nowhere to turn.
0: Yeah, that'd be cool. You know, we were talking pre-show today about uh, Disney stuff, and I mentioned Autopia, my first driving experience as probably a five-year-old, and I remember the big bumpers on those, so that's all they have to do is just weld these really nice bumpers on the back of each of the cars in the hyper tunnel, and it should work fine. Um, Ken, we have something in from the
4: audience. We do. Um, we have a, uh, a URL that was dropped in the uh, chat for the, those of us who are listening and not, uh, not watching chat regarding the uh, transportation in Las Vegas. The URL is lvcva.com slant Vegas dash loop. And so there's uh, something to watch there. And more importantly uh, is a request from Eduardo. Uh, John, he wants to know what's the name of the bird
3: uh, his name is drum roll, please, Courtney.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I don't have a drum roll. <sighs> virtually, there we go. His Much name better.
3: is his name is Bird, Bert the Bird. There you go. Does
1: he played the saxophone. <laughs> nice.
0: Uh, by the way, about transportation at NAB, if anybody is going and you're flying in, they have they they've got a lot of experience in moving large numbers of people around. So. You have the monorail, which is an alternative, particularly if you're staying at one of the hotels on the monorail loop. And I used to pick my hotel based on that. I would stay on the north side of the strip because uh, four or five, I can't remember which it is, of the hotels have monorail stations there. Uh, Often a station handles two hotels. So um, if you're there, you can roll out of bed late, get on the monorail and go right to the convention center. Also, there's a gigantic system of buses that NAB in the past has often done. And so each hotel would be served, um, not each hotel individual, but sometimes two or three hotels in an area would be served by buses and they do loops all week long during the convention So if you are staying at, I don't know, I'm going to probably pick a hotel that's gone now. Let's say you're staying at the Aladdin. I think it's gone. So um, if you're staying at that hotel, you'll find a bus that says the Aladdin and two other hotels near there. And you can just hop on the bus at any time. Uh, They're very active during the morning hours to get you there. They're very active in the afternoon to get you back to your hotel. And... They go probably once an hour back and forth and do loops around there. So transportation has been thought of. And of course, cabs in Las Vegas, that, that, that is a city that crawls with taxi cabs. So it's usually pretty easy to find when you're in a hotel where the taxi cab stand is. And if for some reason you can't get to the show any other way, you hop down to the, to the cab stand and you can get a, a cab right to the hotel right to the convention center. So they, they've figured out transportation about as well as they can for something that used to have 160,000 people showing up for the show.
1: Let's go to the next question. Coming in from uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas is how much RF congestion is there at an AP? Uh, the answer is as much
0: as humanly
1: possible. John Preto.
3: You know, the guys were on the live use yesterday and I didn't see a lot of drop offs happening. And, 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 um, and Keenan brought his box with him as well. In fact, the entire party—this is not a, this wasn't at the NAB conference—but I, I wanted to give Keenan some props. We ran our entire party on Keenan's bonded 3D uh, or, or cellular um, box. It's uh, the Disaster Group router, and it ran flawlessly for four hours with all you guys online. And and he brought that to CES and now at NAB, and he's had really, really good luck with it. So,
0: Yeah, I and I'm I'm sorry, I, I was being a little flippant. As an individual with just trying to get like a feed out with your iPhone or something like that, it is sketchy at best, but there are solutions, and I think we've just talked about two of them. Uh, props to the Live View folks, we had really good luck getting out from the floor of the show through those live views. And I agree. Kenan's has been fabulous. I was in the desert for John Preto's rocket launch thing, and we were able to get cellular signals back and forth out of there through bonded cellular and a bunch of other things. I think that's really cool technology. And as you hear more about Kenan, what's the, uh, what's the name of the company, John? It's disaster
3: group. Or the, something? the disaster group,
0: the disaster group. They're doing some really good work uh, because in part, they're a public safety orientation Uh and so when you get into circumstances where there's been some kind of disaster, you want to make sure you can get signals in and out. It's mission critical for public safety. And so there's a lot of activity in that space. And uh, I think it's going to bode nothing but well as we continue to move forward, being able to cover these things. Courtney, you had a thought?
1: Uh, yeah, I can uh, take you back in history. Before there were a lot of uh, cell phone connections. In the early days, I remember going to NAB. Uh, and you'd at the end of the day, you'd try and make a long distance call back to your office or something, and the trunk lines between Las Vegas and the rest of the world were always full, so you'd have to schedule a long distance call and you might get through after maybe a half hour to an hour of waiting. Just to get a long distance voice call through. Now that's changed over the years, and the cellular networks came in. But remember, Las Vegas sitting in the middle of the desert. And there's until they laid fiber to connect to those communication systems with the rest of the world. Uh, it was difficult. Uh, they would they would clog up the trunk lines and, and saturate the trunk lines. So they um, eventually went to LTE, and uh, that has alleviated a lot of the uh, voice congestion. And a lot of the data congestion, but I have a sneaky suspicion because they charge, I don't know what, $2,000 a day or something for a more than that, <laughs> $6,000 a day, yeah, the, 6, size the amount of, uh, of data you want to push through it to a, for a, uh, a regular uh, ethernet drop uh, to connect to the backbone for your booth. Uh, so that's kind of pricey. And I think they would kind of limit the. The uh, major telephone companies would come and put repeaters inside all the halls uh, to handle the uh, cell phone traffic uh, and some of the cell data traffic. But I think now that they've they've opened up a lot more data bandwidth to those. I think the convention centers, you know, got uh, got wind of all the complaints about not being able to get data out, and so they kind of bit the bullet and let the phone companies bring in more data because, of course, the phone companies get the money. Because all those people exceeding their data caps if they don't have unlimited.
0: Oh, there you go. I didn't think about that, but you're right. It is a kind of a profit center in that respect. Let's go on to the next question.
1: Next one comes in from uh, Alton uh, Christensen in New York City. He says, is text-based video editing in Premiere at all really AI? John Pretto.
3: I would consider it technically as machine learning and and AI as a, as a you know the top level root and machine learning as one of the features underneath the AI. That's how I would label it.
2: Roscoe, uh, yeah, Philip Hodgetts. Uh, there's a before NAB, the bunch of editors get together and do a thing called the NAB Editors Lounge, um, and they Philip Hodgetts had a good statement on that. And he said, you know, we he has tried and Philip, well, I don't, he has a great. Background in this area, he tried many different uh, guys that were be text or using the text to do the editing, and so they all they all failed in in the sense that the story when you got to the end of it was very clunky, not very smooth. Until you need uh, always that human person to step in and do the finish. And
0: Philip's an old friend of mine, and I will say that I've been talking to. He's the person who who put uh, a lot of this stuff on the radar for me. 10 years ago when we first uh, met at an AB and started chatting afterwards. Um, and so I think the branding has gotten ahead of things a little bit in some of these areas, but uh, Courtney, your thoughts.
1: I don't think it's AI, it's just a programming, um, uh, algorithms. Cause the, there's several things that have to be present for that type of a system to work. First, you have to translate your, your audio into text. So, you have to, it may have a little AI into that because so, you don't want to have the wrong words showing up. But as it does that translation, it also, your video clips have to have time code in them because it has to time stamp that text with a metadata of the time code that it starts at on the video. So, that's maintained in a database. And, um, Then also, it helps to uh, tag your video with who's speaking on camera, and that has to be done by an operator or something when it's ingested into your edit system. Uh, I think maybe AI could be involved in uh, facial recognition once you set up uh, a a library or a list of people that are going to be on camera and their names so that it can then associate their face with their name, and that can be added to the metadata uh, for the text edit. And the best these things can do is really do a rough cut assemblage. It can assemble, you know. You can base your uh, uh, your cut, your rough cut, your first assemblage on just what's being said, and those those are the the points that you want to make in your edit. Those uh, particular responses or uh, lines that the people are reading is what you want to put in your edit, and the order that you want to put them in. So it'll it'll pick the clips, it'll put them in order, but it won't necessarily pick the best take if it's a dramatic uh, you know, uh, film or something where you'll have six takes of the same dialogue. You know, you have to pick which take of that dialogue is going to go in there. You know, you're going to want that line in there for the scene to play, but you don't know which take, So you're going to have to select that anyway. So, uh, and it's not, of course, going to handle cutaways, uh, to reaction shots, you know, things to smooth that out. That's all going to be left up to a real life editor, AI may eventually get, get better at doing that. I'm amazed at what ChatGPT can do to construct a storyline and can, can make up all, si- all sorts of uh, conflict and add that in uh, uh, reactions of different characters that you didn't mention at all in your prompt to have it write a story. So I assume it's possible as long as it has the assets to create it, uh, or maybe it can create its own assets. AI is getting better and better as we go along.
2: Roscoe? Yeah, I know we're running a little long, but um, I just the other thing that all the editors agreed on, they really want the AI to do the grunt work, organizing the clips, presenting them with the best options or the options, just organizing stuff in the background, which assistant editors have gotten paid to do for years. But they're really hoping that AI can just get in there and do it in a consistent method that works for that those editors.
0: I, I've been listening to all of these things. And again, Phil's been a friend of mine for a long time. So uh, I've, I've gotten some training from the best of them. Um even though then the thing of assistant editors, you know, the really good assistant editors bring a lot of creativity to things. If you're tagging assets, um, will the AI system understand that this asset that I've tagged for this also has relevance in two other categories? And I'm determining that based on understanding the story flow and the editor who is going to be working with these, would he or she, or they want, This clip in five different buckets as opposed to one. And it's quite possible to do that through metadata tagging now. You don't have to put a clip in one place, you can put it in multiple places. And that's more and more uh, a part of the editing thing. And as an editor, when you're in the zone and saying, I need this clip, where was it stored? Oh, I remember it being in this bucket, and you can get to it instantly and maintain your flow as an editor trying to just assemble the story visually and and via audio the way that makes the most sense, you believe, for your audience. Um, So I, I do think there's going to be tremendous savings in grunt work through some of the things that machine learning, particularly, but AI in general. I also think that AI has become a branding thing. I remember the year that I couldn't go into a drugstore, into the soap aisle and not see now with aloe on every product, bar of soap and whatever. It had gotten into the public consciousness that aloe was some plant thing that's really good for your skin. And so we went from nothing having it to everything having it, including probably the products who just threw a few drops in so they could put now with aloe on the front. I sometimes feel that Artificial intelligence, AI, and machine learning, lesser extent, um, are starting to get that kind of branding thing. You know, Yes, we have AI. We've plumbed in one little piece of it over here to help you do some things. It's great that you get the help. But I, I wonder, it's going to take me having friends like John Pretto here, who understands far deeper and in a richer sense what this environment is really all about, to help me navigate whether the AI that they're kind of plumbing in, because it's easy now, is going to be the best kind that I need. Uh, we are going to run a little bit long here, and that's because in part I got that call from Alex earlier. He's not going to be here for the second hour, and he's one of our absolute experts on the graphics side of things. We will still talk about gra- graphics. I know there has been at least one question put into the question queue, but we're going to stick on handling your regular questions for a little bit just because we're... Again, a lot of our normal experts, like Alex, are at NAB doing the work that'll drive the show conversations in the weeks to come. So, John Preto, you had, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, John.
3: I w- oh, yeah, I wanted to add one quick thing, Bill. W- sure. What's happening now is text-to-video, and it's going to be voice-to-video eventually. And so people are going to be able to create their video, call it a storyboard at first. And so they're going to be able to create these new videos based upon te- either text input or voice input. And that's going to be a game changer. Uh, uh, editing's still going to to exist, but creating generative video via text and and voice is is the next frontier.
0: Yeah, and how they implement it's going to be real interesting. And I, I say that because in Final Cut, which is the editor that I use all the time, there's a there's a uh, an aspect called auditions that I found really intriguing at first. And what it is, if I've got. Uh, Somebody in the field delivered the line and, and the, the director said, well, give me some variations just and they riff on it. You see this in like comedy movies and things like that a lot. Give me a joke here. Well, the the first joke might be five seconds long. The next one might be seven seconds long. The next one might be a second and a half long. It's a quick punch. And you got all these different things that could fit into this scene. In Final Cut, auditions allows you to stack those clips virtually behind the main clip on your timeline And then you have these takes, and when you rifle through them in playback for a client, you can literally use a keystroke, say, go to the next line, and the entire timeline magnetically shortens or lengthens to take consideration of the amount of time it was to deliver that line. Those kind of things uh, mean that you'd need to have some sort of metadata tag on how long clips were and things like that in order to get any kind of an artificial automated system to make the choice as to which was the better clip. That's the kind of thing that still the editor is going to have to do. And that's the environment I think this stuff is moving into. We will be given more choice from the automated uh, assistant editor kinds of functions. Maybe an assistant editor will still have to do some of those processes like assigning multiple tags or or metadata constructs to each of the clips so that the editor uh, can find them easier and use them correctly. Uh, it's just every, everything is changing out there. Roscoe? Uh,
2: yeah, the other thing in this, talking about broadcast for NAB, is broadcast shows are moving away from scripts, and we can argue whether or not a reality show is scripted or not, but that's a different thing. But the sheer amount of footage that you're having to deal with, uh, in a scripted show, it used to be about 10 to 1 to get to the finished product. And in a reality-based show, it's about 100 to 1. There's so much footage that they're having to deal with that they need AI. They need 15 assistants just to get through the material to come up with the finished product. Amen to that. And the quality rating thing, I mean, I've done
0: voiceovers through uh, using the magnetic timeline. And I go in, and one of the first things I do is rate my performance on different blocks that I read and uh, I can assemble based on those tags. If I do qualitative, you know, this read is a one and that's a good quality. Uh, this read is a four. It's just not as good. Uh, I can sort on the ones, have it auto assemble all my one takes out of all the the lines of all the paragraphs that I read. And I have actually had circumstances where the final spot came out of that initial, you know, just give me all the ones, throw them on a timeline. Oh gosh. It's done that. That was a huge wake up for me because that took a lot of the pressure off of the mastering process and getting things out quick. We also have an audience lays on uh, question come in. So what have
4: we got? Ken. All righty. Well, there's uh, quite a bit of uh, conversation going on over here in, uh, in event chat about uh, the differences between machine learning and uh, AI, in fact, and the gray area that exists between uh Definitive response to a particular input and contextualizing that input to to produce a particular output and and more uh, most importantly I guess in in this is uh, to bring us back from the bleeding edge Xander Snell mentions don't forget that an assistant editor is learning to be the editor so let's leave some room for human beings in here too.
0: there we go that's a quite prescient
2: comment Uh, Roscoe. Uh, yeah, that assistant editor is an interesting comment just because uh, Chapman University holds this uh, forum called Women in Film and they had all a panel of editors up and they talked about the assistant editor. They're not even getting them anymore. Uh, they, they are getting nowhere the amount of training. It's, and it has to do with the fact when the film is done shooting, they actually want a deliverable product within like weeks. And it used to be six months. It used to be a year. That's when that assistant editor was given all the training, allowed to cut a scene, you know, show it to people. That time for the assistant editor to learn is really condensed. So it's hard. You almost have to go out and do your independent projects just to learn the craft.
0: Yeah, I I've seen a lot of that. I've seen uh also on small crews, the kind of um uh, resume film crews, the the people just I got some money together, I got a bunch of friends I want to go make a movie, which I think is great. That's where most of it's those kind of environments where most of us learned how to do this work. Um in those kinds of circumstances, um uh, you know, it's like everybody wants to be the director of photography, nobody wants to learn how to operate the camera. And I'm you know, jumping to the top. I understand the wanting to make progress in your career, but losing all of those interim steps, where in the past the real craft of this was passed along, it's going to be a challenge. I think for some uh, some of the young young folks coming up, if you are put into a position at the top without going through the stages on the bottom, uh, you're going to have to work a whole bunch harder not to get into the suite with the the serious players when you're later in your career and realize you really don't have the foundation. You don't know the language. You don't understand the etiquette. You don't understand the rest of that. Maybe your talent is so prodigious that you will still succeed regardless and you become the next wonder kingdom. That's fabulous. Uh, you know, good luck in, in doing that. But for the, the the serious jobs down the line that make a career and are the stair steps to that, I, I think you
2: jump too many steps on the escalator at a time at, at your own peril, Roscoe. Yeah, I had a student that learned Avid when Avid first appeared, and uh, they they rode that wave right into uh, the show was NYPD Blue. They were within three years of graduation were an editor, an actual the number three editor on the show still to this day. He's done very well for himself, and I, but. Uh, so I'm looking at AI. Maybe there's a technology here that we all are looking at, and some you know new person is going to ride the wave. They're going to they're going to go, oh hey, you got to get Jack because or Susie because you know she knows her stuff. She knows exactly how to use the premier AI to get the best product out of it. So that would be my challenge too to to new people, look at this technology, learn the technology because now you're valuable to the industry. You may advance quicker because of it.
0: Yeah, there's just so much to learn. This is this continues to spread. It's always been a a industry that uh, values people who are not tunnel visionists who can learn more of the things, particularly the higher you go, the more you need to know. Courtney, you had thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think all the AI models currently have either been trained on text or still images. They haven't been unleashed onto the vast uh, collection of video that's out there and a dramatic Uh, films and television shows from you know back in the 60s that have all been digitized and are sitting on servers somewhere so once they start to include that and that's going to take a lot of training because that's a lot of bandwidth to to munch through and tokenize and uh come up with uh, you know cutting styles and to use ai to to create cutting styles and uh a visual look, et cetera, based on past movies and television shows will be interesting. But I don't think anyone's training any models yet uh, with video. So that's why you see the first attempts at doing uh, a text prompt to actual moving video have been very iffy because uh, it doesn't just have enough training and information on creating uh, you know, linear video uh, out of a, a made up objects to be able to create something that's realistic looking.
0: And I love this thing because I I once in one of my lectures said, "Okay, so you've got a door and it's actually a boring shot of the door and you want to hold it for two seconds. And that is boring. Then somebody opens the door and there's the zombie and that's not boring. That's interesting. But the question is, if you've done your work as a writer and somebody knows that there that there might be something to put the character in jeopardy behind the door. Maybe that boring shot needs a couple of seconds so the audience has the anticipation. The shot itself is not good, but its meaning in the context of the flow of information you're presenting to the audience is important. How is AI going to figure out that that long door shot is an A, as well as the entrance of the zombie being the A? Questions to be answered. I just, it's interesting coming from uh, knowing something about still shooting where I was trying to find the perfect frame and video editing for so many years where it was the unfolding of information over time that was the key and how to sequence and leave that up there. We're we're in for some interesting years coming up. John Prado, you had a thought?
3: So the, the method is called, it's called reinforcement learning human feedback. And so open AI and DeepMind have these rooms of people going through these these scans and they're feeding back. And when you use OpenAI right now, they've got an up they've got an up thumb and a down thumb. We're help training the model moving forward. So we're help training 3.5 and 4.0 moving forward. But RLHF is is a big deal so that people are going to be watching. Um, these clips and and or sequence of stills, because right now what they're doing, like Courtney said, he's absolutely right on the money. They're doing they're doing interpolation, so they're tweening between images. So if you take a sequence of Mid Journey, so you do one Mid Journey frame and you you've got your zombie, and then you tween them to the next frame. That's what we're seeing right now uh, with the video clips that are done in AI. But they've got a big component of of human beings reinforcement the learning on the machine learning side it's really interesting
0: we're having a lot of fun talking about these things we do have the graphics uh tag coming toward us but we're going to handle your questions for a little bit in between there again alex was going to lead our discussion on graphics but he's at nab and so fully involved in in uh, booking guests and doing other things for the show in the future that we're going to stick with this for
1: a little bit Uh, so next question Next one comes in from uh, Stephen Kimbrough in Berkeley, California. He says, is there a company starting to push into black magic area besides the China knockoffs? Roscoe, what do you think?
2: Well, black magic pushed into everyone else's area, so I really think there's some pushback. Sony, with their better focusing cameras, really this forum has agreed that if you're out there being a vlogger and uh, you don't have the automation to run behind and refocus your camera, the Sony's the way to go. But I think Rode uh, at the low end, I mean, Blackmagic's got a tremendous amount of products. But if you look at the ATEM minis, I think these Rode streaming acts and some of the stuff they've got coming in is pushing where I would have said, oh, get an ATEM mini because it's going to be. No, I think Rode's got some really good solutions for the individual uh, blog blogger. Is that the right thing? Streamer. Uh, video. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Courtney, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean,
1: there's other competitors in individual pieces of the black magic area but black magic is the only company i think out there that has diversified so much to include cameras switchers routers editors and audio all they've bought some of the top companies in all of those areas and, and have integrated all of those products into one continuous pipeline so that they all talk to each other and are incorporated with with each other and have software products that incorporate like the fairlight audio along with the uh video editing and with the video switchers uh you know roland has for a long time had these competitive switchers like this a late input but it's 1495 for a you know you go to the other major switcher manufacturers that are trying to go after this uh, the corporate video and the house of worship video that whole classification of smaller, non-broadcast type uh, live switchers, they're priced, you know, two to three times what the Blackmagic input, you know, uh, uh, Blackmagic entry-level switchers are priced at. So I think uh, everybody else is going to have a hard time competing because Blackmagic is so well diversified in all the different areas that uh, end up in that corporate or streaming or less, uh, well, less than full line broadcast. Ross, you know, has a lot of that sewn up. Sony has a lot of that sewn up in the in the professional broadcast area. But uh, slightly below the professional broadcast and eating into a little bit of the professional broadcast is Blackmagic, uh, where they've uh, made it really a democratized uh, uh, area, product area.
0: All right, let's uh, dive into the next question here.
1: Sorry, I had to cough there. Jack Rappel from Breckenridge, Colorado says, I have a F-Deuce SC-11 sound card controller. I guess that's how you pronounce that. With a button, push, I can get canned laughter. Yes, canned cheering, etc. Is there a way to flash the hardware with my own audio clip? Same question for the Podcaster Pro. Now that depends on whether they allow you to do any flash
0: reprogramming of that. Generally speaking, <laughs> I find those things to be no. There are certainly plenty of software programs that virtualize that kind of sound controller. And you can put on an iPad, and I did this probably a few years ago, put on an iPad a series of buttons and then link them to whatever audio clips you want and play them back in real time with a button push. Courtney, what do you see out there?
1: Well, of course, on my Rodecaster Pro... Thank you, thank you, thank you. I have that uh, available. Uh, you have uh, these uh, uh, sound pads that you can program. You pre-program. You can load, you can load your own sounds in. They come with their own default sounds, and you can record your own uh, clips that go into each of those uh, playback pads. So um, I'm not sure about this SC11 sound card controller whether that. Uh, has, it's really just audio software that can take digitized audio and store it for immediate playback based on a button trigger. So it's not very difficult to do. You can probably do the same thing with Stream Deck, I don't know, with uh, an audio player that is uh, hooked up to your uh, Stream Deck.
3: Yeah, almost companion. surely. Yeah, that makes sense. John Prato? I use Soundboard Pro on the iPad, and it works fabulous. You can load as many WAV files or MP3s on there as you would like.
0: There you go. And the the question for your uh, SC11 is, does it allow you to add things to its flash memory? Is it addressable or have they pre-programmed in those sound effects and don't allow you to add others? Let's go to the next question.
1: Coming in from uh, Tony Mobley in uh, Noonan, Georgia. He says, can the panel recommend a budget conscious camera that can record live on stage productions and would allow for streaming? Ooh!
0: Does anybody have any thoughts about which uh, budget conscious and and Tony that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people? Courtney, you want to give us some some hints, Mayor, maybe?
1: Well, a lot of was it JVC has added streaming into uh, a lot of their camcorders uh, that they're, they're prosumer camcorders uh, that are pretty nice for doing. Uh, you know, they have built-in attached lenses. Now they're not well, they're not that expensive. They're actually pretty cheap if you consider what it's doing, and they have. Uh, built-in streaming, you can put in a uh, streaming address to uh, stream live from the camera out over Wi-Fi uh, to a streaming source. So there are uh, ways to do that. You won't be able to switch, of course, but it's just from that one camera to your one stream location. Uh, you can, of course, use uh, the ATEM minis to stream directly uh, from a switch to the Internet. So that's pretty uh pretty cheap and budget conscious. But as far as an individual camera, I'm not sure. There, I'm sure there are others that have uh, the Wi-Fi chips built in and the ability to uh, hit a stream directly.
0: I wonder how long it's going to be before somebody comes up with an online streaming ingest process that would do the synchronization and switching in the cloud and allow you to zap it out to AWS or one of the services. You'd think that would be something along the way. There's probably a bunch of latency and upload and download issues to solve between now and when that happens. But it'd be interesting if there was a virtual switcher, virtual cloud-based switcher that could do that. Courtney?
1: Well, the other thing to consider is any cell phone can do that right now. So uh, that would be one way to do it, just get some little things to hold multiple cell phones and stream each one to a separate streaming channel and then the people on your Facebook page or whatever could be pointed to those streams and they could switch their own POVs from each of those individual streams from individual cell phones. And that's probably the cheapest way to do it with a bunch of cheap Android phones that uh, can be set up to uh, output directly to a streaming source.
0: Can we have somebody probably who wants to get in on this discussion.
4: We do indeed. Uh, first off, uh, in, in this organization, it's always difficult to uh, say what budget conscious means because uh, some of us have different budgets than others. So it's like that question about what's the best. You know, well, hmm. um, so knowing what your uh, expense limit is uh, going to be is important, according to chat here. Uh, and also the... The concept of, from my own results uh, and experience, uh, the concept of using Wi-Fi streaming is uh, fraught with difficulty. Uh, The time when you set up your cell phone to do Wi-Fi streaming is when the hall is empty. Uh, And then when you go to do it in real life, you've got 200 other people sitting there who also have cell phones in their pocket. And all of a sudden, your Wi-Fi isn't Wi-Fi anymore. It's just mess. So unless you've got a router sitting underneath your camera at the time, I think that might be difficult.
0: Absolutely, Ross. Could you have a last comment here?
2: Well, yeah, I've done some streaming out of theaters, and so the other question is, how far away the stage is the camera, or must it be? If you have a live audience, you can't suddenly, oftentimes, put a you know camera right in the middle of the audience. Somebody who bought the seat right behind the camera might complain. Or you, or what we did is we would block out seats in the back, but then you need lenses, so you need a you. I, we were shooting with the pocket six Ks, and we had the Canon really nice uh, seventy to three hundred, seventy to two hundred lens, and it did get us in there, got us a nice head to shoulder. So there's a lot of considerations when you're dealing with a venue that may have an audience that you may not be able to put the camera in the optimum place, and that will determine, I think, the quality of what you're going to get. But I think a phone is a great place to start.
0: So I just want to make the acknowledgement that normally uh, this is our graphics day, and we had posted the fact that we'd be talking about what graphics in uh, equipment and services were being seen on the show floor at NAB. Uh, because of the fact that I've only seen one question this morning in the queue, and I think it's still in there, and we will definitely get to, about the panel discussion of graphics at at N- NAB. Um before the bottom of the hour, I'm going to I'm gonna switch and at least have us chat a little bit about that topic, but I want to be clear that Alex was going to be here and he was going to lead that discussion, and I was really looking forward to seeing what he had seen as somebody who deals with graphics a tremendous amount, what he was seeing on the show floor. He got just too swamped there. He asked me to kind of cover this second hour and do that. Uh, It's something I know a little bit about, but I'm certainly not an expert in any respect. We will still have probably here at the bottom of the hour. I'm going to take a break and we're going to handle the one graphics question we have in here and make sure that if you have additional ones, feel free to put it in there. Uh, I've got just a couple of notes about what he's seen on the show for, but not a lot. And so uh, if you have some experience, if you've been reading things about what's happening at NEB in terms of graphics capability, but we will undoubtedly have a major show probably next Tuesday. And I would guess that most of that will be devoted to the new equipment, the new techniques, the new software, and just things like um, how things like ChatGPT are working into the world of graphics and Chiron and lower thirds and things like that. That'll probably be a big topic next Tuesday. For now, I'm going to keep going with just the regular things until the bottom of the hour. We'll stop for graphics. But then we've got enough questions of general. Uh, I'll probably go back to that unless unless you, the audience, wants to spend more focus on graphics. And if so, put those questions in and we will deal with them. All right. All that said, sorry about the, the, the preamble. Let's dive back into our regular stream for next uh, four minutes. All
1: right, next up is Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. He says, Any exciting developments in the world of USB at an A B?
0: That's interesting. I haven't heard anything specifically about
1: USB. Does anybody has anybody read anything? Courtney, you had a thought? I haven't read anything. You know, uh, USB is an organization and and you know, the best place to look for uh, Uh, new developments there is there's something called the usb implementers forum which is online look it up you can find it on wikipedia collection of that and it's a collection of the people that are uh, subscribed to the usb standard Uh, all the major computer manufacturers uh, are in on that from compact and digital and and ac and intel and all the big players there and new developments are likely to show up there first i don't know of anybody who's necessarily using usb as an interconnect format since everything's moving more to ip communications uh for transmitting audio and video in the world at nab i don't think they're sending a whole lot there is wireless usb which never really went very far uh as a means of communication, but the complexity of USB and the bandwidth available at USB uh, doesn't really uh, bode well. It doesn't really implement well as a uh, network, inter- you know, as a networking protocol for multiple video channels, et cetera. So I, I don't think you'll see a lot at NAB on USB advancement. I may be wrong because I'm not there. Yeah. we'll we'll see
0: what we hear in the next couple of days. Let's go to the next question.
1: From uh, L.A., Uh, Rajan uh, Shandil says, the new DJI drone and tech behind it seems like the future happening now. And he has a link in there. Thoughts in all the newly integrated technology and 8K ProRes RAW streaming 4K?
0: Yeah, it looked very impressive to a lot of us. It also has a pretty impressive price. Roscoe?
2: Yeah, my my only concern is uh, I just see a one terabyte. It's a DJI uh, memory card, and it's only one terabyte. And I'm thinking eight K ProRes RAW at one terabyte is not. It's going to be a what five minute, ten minute load. Well, no,
0: ProRes RAW is pretty efficient, as I recall. ProRes RAW was about the same uh, bandwidth after its modern compression as uh, traditional HD. So it really wasn't much bigger than that. So I guess that a terabyte will probably hold a reasonable amount. That's my my guess anyway. However, the fact that it can do 8K signals and streaming in 4K is pretty compelling for a lot of people. I also know that the price was somewhere or in north of $16,000. So this probably won't be a, uh, I just want to play with a drone in my backyard and have some fun with 8K kind of solution, unless you are of a very different economic weight than I. <laughs> Courtney,
1: yeah, in the industry in the television and video and film production, you know that's where this new DJI drone will live. Uh, It takes the place of what used to be a helicopter shot. You know, you'd pay that much for a helicopter for the day just to rent it. Uh, You could buy this DJI drone and use it every day on the film production. So, also, you don't have the problems of uh, fueling the helicopter, etc. You just have to have a bank of rechargeable batteries and uh streaming live you're not going to use it for a lot of live television shots and live you know sports for example you you could put it up and get one shot and then you know bring it back down and change the batteries and send it back up again but uh faa restrictions over crowds is such that you know it'd be tough to uh it's tough to use those in a, a live sporting situation with a lot of audience around but uh for a lot of situations where you know I say uh uh, off-road uh, contest races that are across the desert. Oh, they're perfect for that kind of stuff, where they previously used very expensive helicopters with gyro gyro-mounted cameras uh, to cover those kinds of things. They still do to a large degree, but drones could be used to cover short areas of it uh, pretty conveniently and pretty inexpensively. So I think that's the that's the area that these drone that these uh, 8K and 4K uh, camera drones are looking into uh, and taking a lot of that that work away from the helicopter pilot. Roscoe? Uh,
2: it does, yeah, it does 4K 30 frames per second, which is pretty impressive for a download, and it does a 1080p at 60. So I think, yeah, broadcasts will definitely enjoy these.
0: Okay, we're going to take just a, a pause here for a minute and talk about the graphics side of this because it is Graphics Tuesday on Office Hours. And so uh, I was chatting with Alex earlier today, and, uh, he was saying that he is seeing a good little bit of AI generated and powered graphics on the floor as he's walked through. He hasn't actually had much time on the show floor because he's been so busy getting ready for his presentations and things like that, uh, that, and, uh, the, the, um, oh, what's the big, and I'm spacing on it for the moment, the big, uh, world of gaming that Nick Justician comes and talks to us about every day. Uh or occasionally the uh a ton of Unreal Engine. Unreal, Unreal Engine. Unreal Engine. Thank you very much. The 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 lots and lots of sets driven by Unreal for working in the 3D space for working in virtual worlds. I guess he's seeing a lot of the big screens uh, putting someone And We actually saw some of that in our show floor coverage yesterday. Uh, Bo Cordell was was there in front of something, and we saw the shot of him in front of uh, just a very simple set on the show floor. But when he showed us above the uh, overhead display, they had mapped our reporters and their host into an Unreal Engine-generated world. And I don't think anybody is shocked to see how much those kind of immersive graphics are becoming a part and parcel of the language of uh, what we do in video production and everything else. I'm sure Alex will come back with tons and tons of things. Uh, I'm not sure if there was, yeah, was there at least one question? I'm I'm sitting here trying to look down the list and it looks like, no, just that for, um, for just a, a hint at what is happening. And again, Alex, apologize. He had planned on being here, but... He is just inundated with uh, all sorts of calls on his time at NAV. I'm really looking forward to him getting back here. Hopefully it'll be Friday. Uh, I'm not sure he'll be back tomorrow. But then the debriefs will happen all next week on office hours in terms of what was actually on the show floor. And, of course, do not forget that in just a couple hours here, a few hours here at 3 p.m. Pacific time, we are going to be back live on the show floor at NAB, going booth to booth, um, basically looking at your questions, but also looking at what's happening on the show floor. What are the big things? We had a very successful A stint of this uh, yesterday morning when we were able to go to the show floor live. uh, And once we got everything settled in after probably a half an hour or not less than that, after 15 minutes or so, the the flood of information, the ability to go booth to booth, get your questions to the show floor in, in circumstances where they were appropriate, and really talk to the people who are doing these demos at NAB and learn from exactly what's happening. And the you are there kind of feeling of that. I just, uh, that was very satisfying for me as somebody who's attended NAB for a long time to get the feeling like, and maybe I hadn't missed out entirely this year just because I had to stay in San Diego through the course of this. Roscoe,
2: your thoughts. Well, it was just Bo's uh, technology yesterday, he put them on their virtual stage, which I guess is a demo stage they're using there. So that's pretty cool that, you know, we had enough of a contact to get into the expensive uh, demo area. And I was trying to figure out, he was using Unreal Engine, but I was trying to figure out, was he using Depth? As an alpha key, in other words, as far you know, if I could say that the person ten feet away from my camera has a completely uh, non-transparent pixel, but everything twelve feet and thirteen feet back from the camera is invisible, and I was trying to figure out if what he was doing there. I know we're doing with a Mandalorian effect where we put the big LED screen behind us, but are we to this point where we're using the calculations at the camera and then adding these Unreal Engine backgrounds without even needing that giant LED display? that's going to be cool.
0: That would be cool. Actors working in Z space. Another thing of blocking becomes even more important. That's actually very cool. John Preto, your thoughts.
3: You know, it's been very super interesting to watch Doug Ferguson as we started started, uh, Office Hours March 2020 um, to grow into where he's at right now, because he started off on the TriCaster and using the graphics that's built into the TriCaster. And then he used a program that's a couple of thousand dollars called Character Works that runs on a PC, and then he would feed that key fill into, into his TriCaster, and now he's moved up to Ross. And so now he's using expression built into Ross with, with the Altrex switcher, and, uh, and he's playing with the big boys. And, you know, it was really interesting to watch Bo, because Bo did the graphics at the at the Olympics, they did work at the Super Bowl, they were out here for an NFL game. So Bo works for the you know, the solution sides of Ross that goes out and does these these big events. I just hit my mic over. Um and uh you, you know, to get in with the big guys using this really expensive hardware, uh about, I don't know, hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollar investment on Doug's part to upgrade his trailer over a three year period.
0: Yeah, that's just amazing. But you know, those are the the people who make those investments. We're at another inflection point, right? The things are changing, and uh, it's all going to the kinds of stuff we're doing, where video is on IP, and the connection between audiences and producers is happening over the internet as much as it used to happen over broadcast television. It's going to be an interesting change these coming years. Courtney, you're th- thinking.
1: Yeah, as far as television broadcasting goes and graphics and NAB, you know, typically for many years, you'd see the, uh, the weather graphics, people generating now virtual interactive sets so that your weatherman can be walking around inside uh, big maps that fly up out of the floor and come around behind a virtual desk. And they're actually sitting on a green screen stage and the camera movement is being tracked uh, in real time and composited in real time into that virtual set. And uh, it used to be just static images or just little layers that they would move to make it give you the image, the uh, appearance of a 3D world that they're standing in and they would render their shadow onto the floor, et cetera. And so it makes them look like they're standing in a very fancy set that's all coming out of a computer. These days, uh, Unreal Engine has taken over a lot of that market. There's a company called Zero Density that I think is previewing their uh, Unreal-based on-air graphic solutions so that they can now generate realistic-looking 3D rendered sets uh, that track camera movement uh, that look quite real and probably are indistinguishable from the real thing. They also incorporate the lighting from your studio. So Unreal Engine has the ability to light your virtual set and match the lighting of your studio lighting, so it looks. Uh, it it blends perfectly into the uh, studio lighting of your live characters that you're inserting into that virtual set. So it it makes it a lot less uh, distinguishable be- between a virtual graphic and a and a real set. So I think they're making a lot of uh, a lot of advancements in that area. And I'm seeing like a like you say, uh, Unreal Engine has really captured a large portion of that market, which was. Used to be um, with VizRT, used to have a lot of that tracking software in for green screen compositing, uh, is now being moved over to Unreal Engine.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I wasn't even on my radar before office hours. And, and I think that's part of why I, I, you know, I was going, why does Alex spend so much time talking about USDZ and some of these things that add the third dimension to mapping and things like that? And now I'm starting to understand it's because of what those kinds of things we're seeing on the floor at NAB where systems need to map 3D objects into 3D space, not just with width and height, which was our typical flat televisions before. And even though we're still watching on flat screens, the calculation behind the scene has to uh, allow for three-dimensional stuff. And it's going to probably be more and more a part of what we watch every day as as things move forward. Let's uh, go on. And uh, if you have, again, other other questions having to do with specifically graphics, let's just integrate them into our regular question flow as we head toward the top of the hour. So uh, next question, Courtney.
1: Uh, this is a regular question coming in from Paul Wallace. He says the uh, DVEO Ad and CG insertion solutions inserts local ads, graphics, and text scrolls, and other content into video streams. Will this work with Zoom shows?
2: Roscoe, do you know anything about this? Well, no, I don't, but I'm going to say unless Zoom supports it, I'm going to say no. I mean, the the idea, there's two things to think about here. A lot of people are looking at Zoom as just ingestion. This is where I get eight people to show up. I get their SDI out of the dual link card. And now I've got something I can put into a professional switcher and, and, and add these kind of professional tools if that's what it is to go local. But to me... Anything that's localizing stuff in this manner is uh, kind of automating, trying to automate what and get rid of the people at the local station, although it's probably already taken place for many of them. Courtney Gooden. Well,
1: I'd ask this question of Andy Carluccio,
2: who we have out in the,
1: in the field at NAB, because he's head of the Zoom broadcast uh, integration division. Uh, so I think they're looking to take the tools or create the tools to allow integration with existing broadcast tools. Uh, into Zoom, so maybe uh, maybe there is an interface that's coming down the line that we haven't heard about or hasn't been announced.
0: No, but Andy has talked about the fact that the Zoom apps initiative is uh, aligned with him, and there may be apps coming in the future that third parties build to start incorporating more of these kinds of ad insertion and things like that tools into the Zoom stream. I mean, uh, they have an API. And that means that clever programmers, clever content producers, uh, people who are looking at this as the next big wave of communication coming for the future, uh, might start building apps or building whole suites of apps, uh, maybe even destinations on the web where people can come in via Zoom and participate in more complex programming. Uh, by doing that. The, the, the future has a lot of possibilities out there. I'm, I'm pretty astonished at, at it. Sometimes I sit back and I feel to myself, we're at another one of these inflection points. Everything is changing. It's well on the way to changing. I'm not saying it's just starting, but there's so much headroom in front of us in terms of what we will be watching, what kinds of content uh, is being devised and created and imagined for a future where so many people now are uh, migrating away from the traditional sit in your living room broadcasting and are pulling their mobile devices out of their pocket and consuming things uh, on demand um, at the time and place of their choosing. And I know it's changed my habits as an individual. I am watching, I'm still watching a reasonable bit of TV. My wife and I like to sit down at dinner and chat and watch news programming and things like that just to keep up. But I also find it very normal for me to just kick back at the end of the night. If she's got something going on, I'll pull out my phone and watch a movie or watch a piece of content or maybe uh, check out what's happening on YouTube music videos or things like that just as a relaxation. And that changes the nature of the whole thing. When we have in our pocket something that can tap into all this, and certainly our mobile phones have kind of been the leading edge. There are way more services on my phone in terms of 3D content and uh, Dolby sound and the rest of those things than on probably any other of my watching devices. I mean, when you're getting Dolby and multi-channel and all those things available on my iPhone and they're not available on my TV because I haven't revved it in a few generations, that, that's a change out there in the marketplace. Let's go to the next question.
1: Next one's coming in from, uh, Edmonton, Canada, Ontario. Dave Troutman says, are colorists going to benefit from, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence where matching shots is a consideration? He says it's an acquired skill. No, is it ever John Pratt, your thoughts.
3: When we studied neural networks in the late eighties in college. Never did I think that that the creative industry would be one of the first industries to to have AI implemented, machine learning implemented, to create these ama- amazing imagery that we're seeing out of the out of the generative tools these days. Um So I I think it will be helpful. I think as far as iterative work, where it will show you different colorist type of of scene looks, like show me this image, what it would look like. Whoever the DP for for Blade Runner was that orangey Mars kind of look and feel. You'd easy be easily be able to do that with with AI. So I think that iterative looks in the style of a certain DP would be easily implemented in in machine learning.
0: Orange and teal crossing each other on the color wheel. This will be good. Let's try it and let's do it, um, Courtney.
1: Yeah, I mean, this these kind of tools have been available for to colorists and to in almost all the nonlinear editors for almost a decade now where you can match, you can take a shot and say, you know, use this color range in this shot. So it can, it can move them closer along the color space between two uh, different cameras. Uh, it can create a lookup table based on you establish a look for one shot and and it can then apply that look at least in the color Color balance and the gamut that it's using for each other other shot in that sequence, so you can apply a, uh, a, a color temperature a color look uh, across a whole sequence. That can be done right now, and I don't think it uses machine learning. It's just a matter of looking at the uh, looking at the scopes or the color values of each of those shots and putting them all into the same range, moving them all into the same range. Uh, it's algorithmic now, but not necessarily intelligent to any degree.
2: Roscoe? Oh, Courtney kind of nailed it all. Uh, but I there, I put a link in uh, there that uh, basically it says exactly what he said, that it, it's if you can see it, you can match it. And so you can go and find that great looking shot. It could be a pho- photograph. And then you say, here it is. Now apply it to my moving images here. And then it will hopefully let the AI. But again, I don't think it's. AI, I think it's like we've said, machine learning. I will say
0: that I have, you know, occasionally as someone who shoots multi-camera stuff and has to colorize it afterwards, I've, I've found circumstances where camera A, the wide shot in front has a stage shot. The stage is lit by all this stuff. Camera B, which is 30 feet to my right shooting across with a picture of the drummer, for lack of anything else to say, uh, some other person. Uh, that there are big windows behind the drummer so the uh, overall impression of those two shots is widely different and i have tried to pull the second shot to be using ai to or the the rudimentary tools uh you know just use algorithmic 3d luts to try to get this one to look like that one sometimes it fails miserably and uh, you know, it depends on how much resolution you have on the shots. Sometimes you have more data to work with, that bigger color bit depths, HDR. If you have those kind of things, it can really help to make those two shots similar to each other. Um, but that's kind of why I would like, still like that human being in the seat to make the value judgment of, I'm going to keep pushing at this until I get it as far as it can go, and I know when to stop. And sorry, but we're just not going to be able to completely make these two shots match. I've got the skin tones correct, but when you're switching from camera A to camera B, the luminance values are way off and I can't clamp them down without making it look flat, pixelated and ugly. Um, So there will still be the need for people, human brains behind this. I think even as this stuff gets better and better, but I'm not denying the fact that it's getting better and better and we'll continue to do so proudly, Courtney.
1: Yeah, if you look at some of the resolve and some of the new tools that are available in there, you can actually relight a scene uh, based on the AI, the AI will do a depth map that it it figures out from what's in the foreground, what's in the background, just from the content, and what's in focus, and then it can apply a lighting model, you can actually change the direction of lighting onto a shot, it's a little bit difficult, but it manages to do it once it it generates that 3d model. so AI is involved in, in some of that, I think, to some degree. So it uh, to in order to figure out the depth, the depth chart, and then apply the 3D lighting models as to, you know, what hits something in the foreground, what is bounce light off of something to fill, etc. I think, you know, but but uh in as far as creativity goes, I think uh you could go to something like Mid-Journey and just use it as a style guide. You could look through it. At some of the stuff that, uh, you know, like here in the showcase, you know, all this stuff is being generated and look at all the variety of styles from, uh, you know, 1950s uh, hand-drawn uh, illustration to uh, uh, Disney-type animated characters to, you know, everything you can possibly think of. You could just choose a style here and have it apply that style to computer-generated imagery, uh, whether or not you could use a color balance, look at that multicolored ape. Amazing. Uh, but you could use that. To, <laughs> but used to be done for, for art directors used to have these books uh, of style guides that look at architecture and, and imagery from a of wide variety of, of artwork uh, to generate a look for a film uh, to determine the style of photography and the style of art direction that's going to be used in a film. Nowadays, AI can generate those style books based just just based on text descriptions, and can come up with a a wide variety of color palettes and looks that uh, you know chooses colors that that have a dramatic impact, uh, and that can all be done with AI. Credo thought
3: so. I want to give you a, a couple of examples um, and uh, analogies. So, ChatGPT, uh, I did I did a um, an iterative work that was take green eggs and ham and write it in the style of Charles Bukowski. And it was fabulous what it produced for me. And in Mid Journey, you can tell it, you can tell it in the style of any of the, you know, say uh, Vermeer, and it will produce that work. And so uh, just exactly what Courtney just showed you is exactly what I would think that the colorist would want to look through to, to look for a certain style.
0: Yeah, those things are real interesting. I will say I read something just today that one of the big photo competitions, uh, the guy who won one one area of it, not the whole thing, uh, confessed that he had generated the photo out of AI and it took the top award. And he confessed to it and said, I just want you guys to know that this is how good this is getting. And they weren't able to discern that. Now, on the other side of the coin, I've seen some scripts coming through. I'm doing some longer-form narration work on on audiobooks and stuff like that, just trying to learn a little bit about that business. And surprisingly, I've seen a couple of scripts uh, scripts come by to audition for in the nonfiction category, and it takes about a paragraph and a half, and I go, oh, somebody just generated that out of AI. There's nobody behind that. This is the most formulaic, obviously a computer, crank this out based on a pretty poor prompt and all it's doing is generating paragraphs with no real meat to them. So, you know, I'm not saying that's all it can do. Certainly as the prompts get better, as the technology gets better, and John knows more than I do about how much advancement there was between uh, three and four in GPT and how much better, I mean, it's just getting better really fast. But there are still notable differences, at least in my perception, about what's going on here. Let's go to the next question. Oh, John, did you want to come back on that one? Or?
3: Uh, there was a huge, there was a huge performance increase from three to four.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. Let's move on to the next question. Next one comes in from Jack Rappel in Breckenridge, Colorado. He says, "Does IceCast sometimes stream audio in 5.1 when Office Hours is producing 5.1 content?"
0: I don't know the answer to that. Alex would, uh, you know, these extra things we're doing as a uh, hopefully benefit to the audience who are in circumstances like IceCast is what we use to put the audio portion of the show out for people who want to listen to it only, don't want to watch any of it. And uh, I don't know whether the 5.1 pipeline is fully implemented there. Uh, Ken, we've got somebody on the audience liaison Right
4: the back end tells us that no, that is not available. Okay, so five, one is not happening there. we're We're moving
0: toward that. But like any development organization, we are prioritizing what is the most important to move the show forward for the largest audience in the most ways. I know Alex has been very, very progressive in terms of trying to get us first up to some of the best quality imagery that you see in terms of uh, video streaming on Zoom. Uh, they've worked very hard on the back end to make that as precise as possible. And there are still evolving tools in terms of color grading, in terms of making sure our audio is really good. Uh, things like the pull-off of audio to inject into the Icecast stream. It is important, but it's probably not the top item on there. And we hope you'll be patient. Uh, The whole teams in the background are working on so many things, and they will eventually turn their attention to trying to make that as good as possible because that's kind of what we do. We're here to learn, to push the boundaries of things. Um, Sometimes we wish we could get to everything fast, but... You know, we're an all volunteer organization. If you want us to get the places faster, one of the things you can do is volunteer, come join the group and uh, say, I have a focus on that. And they will probably get put on the team that's working on that and can help
1: make it happen. Let's go to the next question. Coming in from the cold north of Edmonton, Alberta, Dave Traupin wants to know Can I imagine? I can imagine rotoscoping would be enhanced by machine learning drawing over existing footage. Might we see a whole new category of visualizing? John, what are your thoughts?
3: So, at this generative uh, meeting that that Alex went to, they showed exactly that. They showed sh- several tools for rotoscoping on top of existing video, and Adobe, when they move Firefly, the components tree of, of Firefly into into After Effects, and I, I'm sure Da, da Vinci will do it in Fusion. It will be it will have the ability to do generative inside of layers, so that you could easily do rotoscoping.
1: That'd be interesting, Courtney. Yeah, I mean uh, Photoshop has had uh, their uh, selection tool, their intelligent selection tool to allow you know outlining things and selecting things uh, for a number of years now. That uses a little bit of machine learning to you know to tell the difference between the where an edge of a of a character is and separate it from the background. But I imagine now that it can do that over a series of frames with video, so it can look at the parallax shift between one frame and the next frame to determine. Uh, what's in the foreground and what's in the background and easily generate a feathered, a rotoscoped outline to extract to the foreground from the background. And a lot of tools have been developed over the years. You know, when they did this, um, when 3d was a big thing, you remember about four years ago where all, all movies were converted from 2d. A lot of movies were that were not shot in 3d were, were converted post-converted into 3d. They needed a lot of tools like that to do that separation, to put uh Images, people in the foreground, separate them from people in the background to put them into the left eye and the right eye and generate uh, the parallax required for uh, 3D presentation projection. So uh, there was a lot of development in machine learning for learning for learning uh, to create those tools to do the conversion from 2D to 3D. So I imagine for compositing, uh, those tools are still available and are just getting better and better. Cool. Let's
0: go to the next question.
1: This one comes in from uh, Jack Rapel in Bracket Ridge, Colorado. He says uh DaVinci Fusion with eight in 18.5 supports USD thoughts.
2: Uh, Roscoe. Uh, universal scene description is just a 3D. It's it's kind of like everything else. When you uh, go to a standard that CAD systems can in CAD CAD systems can out <coughs> export and import, uh fusion Hopefully can export and import. And this just allows you to combine your 3D elements. So for VFX, yeah, it's a, it's a great thing that they're supporting a new standard. So we just have a
0: couple more questions. I want to uh, zip through them as fast as we can. We'll try to close out on time because we're, of course, all going to be coming back or as many of us as possible. So let's get to the next question.
1: This one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. It says, Videograph uses artificial intelligence for content moderation and celebrity detection. Is this the best solution available? Well, I don't know what's available. You know,
0: content moderation and celebrity detection. I'm not sure if I want celebrity detection in my world. I've got, I think I've got enough celebrities coming into my brain at this point. Courtney, what do you think really quickly?
1: I'm trying to figure out what celebrity detection is. Does it do your face recognition and then look you up on Wikipedia to see how much you've done or your, uh, your filmography to determine if you're a real celebrity or just a D-list celebrity? Does it rate you A, B, C, D? list of celebrities i'm not sure what that does
0: i don't think any of us do it's about one minute to the top of the hour and i would be bereft if i didn't say our thank yous here at the end thank you for paying into paying attention to the show each and every one of you who are watching now Don't forget tomorrow, big day, or not tomorrow, necessarily today, three o'clock Pacific Standard Time. So that would be 5, 6 p.m., 6 p.m. Eastern. And I don't know what it is in Greenwich Mean Time, but we're going to be talking and walking through the hallways of NAB. So please join us for that. Thanks, as always, go out to the panelists. Thank you guys for showing up today. I really appreciate it. This would have been a mess without you. Also, thanks to you, the audience who has been watching, all of our producers out there. We appreciate it. And the back-end thing. Let's go ahead and roll the credits. Watch all these back-end names go by. They are critical to everything we do every day. And I'll see you in a few hours. Looking forward to it. Bye-bye.
1: Fire up the celebrity detectometer. Yes,
2: some celebrities at Disneyland didn't want to be detected. <laughs> See, Maybe that's, that's it. A... if uh, AI looks through.
1: their glad they you know all caps and uh, sunglasses. Celebrity in stealth mode. That's a thing. Hey, that's Johnny Depp. <laughs>
0: Thanks everybody for being on the panel today. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to come back and do this again tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to as many as you as can show up. This was fun.
1: I will try and join you on the panel this afternoon. If they will let me.
0: Excellent. If you can't please somebody in the back.
3: There's some, there's some list you have to get on Courtney. I got kicked off yesterday. I don't know where that list is. Somebody said, I don't know where it's at either. (laughs) They had a secret (laughs) meeting without us, Courtney.
1: Yeah, I know. Well, I'll just, (laughs) I'll just show up and see if they'll let me in. Maybe they'll There you me. go. You should be on. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to raise my hand somewhere. You were muted, but I think that's what you said.
4: Yeah, you can send a DM to Brian Shand. He knows where okay. everything is.
1: That's who's managing. All right.
4: Yeah. We'll do. Bye
1: bye. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.